Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. the whole chapter, we'll be focusing especially on who we are as the church in Christ and the divisions that the Corinthians experienced and what Paul called them to in unity. So at this point, let us give, let's listen to God's word as we read the whole first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is following to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, God, the power of Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is God's word. Well, how many of you have seen any of the quarantine house memes? Has anyone seen quarantine house? Right? It's, it's kind of a, it's a takeoff of last year's cafeteria table. Which table would you sit in with all these people? But, but the idea of the quarantine house meme was if you were stuck in a house and you had to be with people, you know, choose from these lists of people. Usually it's famous actors or personalities. Um, it could be athletes or politicians. But, you know, if you had to choose and be stuck with people for a really long time out of this group, what would you rather be? Or in my case, I turned it around to my dad, who loves U.S. presidents, and I said, Dad, if you had to be quarantined with five presidents, who would it be? And, you know, he rattled them off in about 30 seconds, who we won. Now, this is, this is generally just harmless fun, right? It's just, it's just kind of a nice uh, make-believe game to help process our, our current waiting and being stuck around. But imagine if you took that to an extreme. What if all of life was a quarantine house where you got to choose the people that you hung out with, that you spent time with? Now, that's actually becoming more and more reality, especially on, on social media. So as a meme, quarantine house is fine. This is a fun way of, of looking at life. But if it becomes a lifestyle, then it becomes very shallow and self-centered. Right? And this is something that we're seeing more and more as we start, start to choose our people, our friends, our community online. Um, now, if we continue down this path, it wouldn't be good for us as a society. But as Christians... Adopting a, an extreme quarantine house mentality is wrong for even a deeper reason. When you follow Jesus, you join the church. The passage that we look at here in the sermon today is it's a very simple idea. You can't pick your people. When you follow Jesus, you just can't pick your people. right? Um, because you are joined in Christ, it changes the very way that you relate to people. You must be committed to them because Jesus is committed to them. And the church must be the community where the strongest bond of the gospel overshadows every other difference. And so what I want us to do is look at what it means to be the church in the midst of divisions. And Corinth is a great place to do that because they were a messed up church. We fit right in. right? They were, they were stuck up and proud. They were petty and divided. They didn't respect Paul's authority. Um, they allowed some truly sick immorality. And yet here is how he starts off his letter to them. He says, you're part of the church. And as he does that, in verses 1 and 2, you see that the church is God's ultimate family. He says to the Corinthians, you are, you are the church that is in Corinth. There's that word ecclesia again, gathering, that we talked about last week. When we are gathered people, we are, we are part of a community that God has brought into existence. And, and Paul says, in, in verse 2, you're not, not only are you the church, but you are those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. Now that, that sounds redundant, 
right? To be sanctified is to be made holy or set apart. What does it mean to be saints? Well, again, it's, it's, it's holy ones, it's chosen ones. But Paul uses that double language not only to draw out that God has made you special, but he's actually drawing back to a time, he's pointing back to a passage in Daniel 7, which is that, that passage of the Son of Man where he comes and receives power, and then he represents, you see the Son of Man represents this end times community, the people of God, victorious in, in white robes that are now ruling over the earth. They're, they're the ones that are holy, shining like stars. And the Apostle Paul, believe it or not, is saying to this messed up church, that's who you are. You're, you're part of that body of Christ. Right? You're, you are part of God's destiny where he is going to take a people and make them whole. And you are one day going to be shining stars in the new heaven and the new earth as you are gathered in a community together. And because we're united together in this special family, you could even say end times family, right? Paul calls the Corinthians brothers. Now, as you see in a lot of translations, the ESV always puts notes that or others put it in. It, it, it's really talking about men and women, so we can very accurately translate this brothers and sisters. And the way that Paul talks here about this family, you're a gathering, and because of that, you're brothers. This brings another idea of incredible unity and bonding. And we actually miss this. There's a, there's a guy who I wrote, referenced him last week, Jay Kim. He wrote a book called Analog Church, basically why we need a physical church in the digital, digital age. And he says there's something that we often miss culturally, and I, I didn't realize this. Listen to what he says about this idea of brothers and sisters. Because we've so often read and heard the ideas that Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ, we've lost sense of the radical reorientation that this idea commands. In the first century world in the New Testament, the most important societal bond was between siblings. In today's culture, we think often of marriage as the relationship that holds our primary allegiance. But this was not so in the time of Jesus. In the patriarchal system of the day, it was the blood relationships between siblings who shared the same father that was the most significant familial bond over and above the contractual bond between spouses. So when Paul calls this group, your brothers, he appeals to them in division, brothers and sisters, he's drawing from deep imagery, saying we are as close as possible. And you see Jesus doing this right in the beginning, from the very beginning of his ministry, right? He called 12 disciples to follow him. He had more, but these are the ones that he, he brought with him all the time. And there were already extreme differences, right? You, you think about Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was seen by most of his fellow Jews as a traitor because he was co-opting, he was, he was working with the Roman government. And, one moment here. We still in there, Paul? All right. So he was working with, they would be working with the Roman government, doing the Roman government's dirty business, right, getting the money from their own people, and then they were allowed to pile on and take more. On the other hand, there was a zealot, Simon the zealot. And the zealots wanted nothing more than to throw the Romans out of Judea. They wanted to get the Romans as a political system out of the promised land, and they were willing 
to use force to do it. They were willing to use guerrilla tactics. They were willing. Some of them were called Sicarii, and that, they had these sharp knives, and they would, they would come and, you know, they would, they would take out Romans from behind, hit and fade tactics. Do you think it took Matthew, how long do you think it took Matthew before he stopped fearing for his life? Simon was there. I don't know how radical Simon was, but you have two people with very, very different backgrounds. And yes, at some point, quoting J. Kim again, Simon and Matthew must have looked at each other and thought, I did not choose you. You did not choose me. Yet here we are. Jesus calls us into this community of our church, which is radically different. People whom we would not associate with otherwise, except that we've been united in Christ. Paul talks about, throughout Corinthians, the sacraments a little bit. I want to talk for a second. What, how do the sacraments show this incredible bond? We think about kids when you've been baptized. What does that mean? It means that you are now part of the visible family of God. It means that God's put his stamp on you. He's put his, his ownership on you. It means you now bear God's name. It's, it's like being adopted, brought into a family. It's a powerful sign that you belong to God, Jesus, because he has his name on you, and therefore you are connected to other people. Here's a kind of an illustration from, from soldiers, right? A, a soldier or, or anyone in the military, when, when they begin, they swear an oath to protect the Constitution and defend and, and obey all their orders, right? The oath that they swear is something that they're making. It's between them and the government. However, as soon as they make that oath, they're now connected to all the other service members who have also made that oath. They are brought into a community with a new identity. Now, baptism is, is also more about what God does to us than what we do, so there's a little bit of a difference there. But there's this common joining together when we are baptized and we're stamped with Jesus' name. You think about it in the same way. The Lord's Supper. As he feeds us, as he shows us his grace, when you have a supper, you, you bring around people together as equals. You show them your love, your fellowshipping together. The Lord's Supper is a promise of that future eternity. When, when we take this supper that Paul will talk about to these Corinthians later on, we're talking about belonging to the same eternal reality of that wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what we're looking for. So what does this mean as, as a church then? Well, we're in, we are in a quarantine house. We're stuck with each other. God says that's a blessing, but that's the reality. Physical, embodied fellowship where we are together, living life together is not optional. It's not. Even if it, there has been, I think, an impulse in American Christianity, certainly as my soldiers, I will have many soldiers who will come and they say, you know, chaplain, I'll, hey, I'll come to your service. You know, I, you know, we're friends, and I like to hear what you have to say. But you know, I don't, I don't go to church at home. I'm a kind of spiritual person. That's, that's just, you know, it's just me and God. It's very much an individualistic um, mentality. I think it's, we're a nation of individuals. There's probably some cultural sense to that. But Jesus makes it very clear that we are joined to the body of Christ. An online church, when we partake of various things is more of consuming a product than committing to the people of God. And what happens when we splinter and divide, we actually cheat ourselves. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of uh, shouting, there's a lot of unfriending, there's a lot of blocking 
going on in social media right now. You know, you just there's these lines, there's these fault lines, and and if you you step on that line, all of a sudden you've lost a third of your friends, and you're not even sure why in their house. Or maybe you were a jerk and you deserved it. But but there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people setting up walls, and you know it's so easy to do that because if I'm not looking at your face and seeing that you're a person, but you're just an icon, it's, it's very easy to remove that person. But we can't do that in the body of Christ, can we? We're stuck with each other. God's called us to be that way. He wants us to grow in fellowship together. My family, I was homeschooled growing up. Growing up I was homeschooled. And I had three sisters, with whom I'm great friends now. But the sister who's four years after me, we were just oil and water. We just, we literally could not stand each other. We didn't hate each other. We didn't actually want to take each other's lives. But we were not happy together. And I remember one time, my dad was very good at sitting us down, and we worked things through. And he did say to me and my sister, look, we're here to help you. We're working through this. But realize that you're going to be with each other for the next eight years. And, and you, you don't go to school. You're here all the time. You got to work this out, right? And the church, by God's grace, is actually that picture where He puts us, this place where He puts us with people who are different than us. Where we, if we're, we're, we have to work it out, we can't, we're not supposed to just leave to unfriend, we can't. And in fact, that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? Because when that happens, we are then able to be honest with who we are. You know, today when you have a, an online presence, many times we put up this, this picture-perfect world, and we kind of put the best version of ourselves. But when we are together and we realize we're saint-sanctified, living together, we can be open, we can be honest about our weaknesses, we can repent of our sins, we can be loved and accepted for who we are as our worst, not at our best. And we're always trying to impress. And that really is the type of community that is attractive to people today. That's the type of community that can be attractive with the gospel when it goes out, when we, when we are looking to welcome people with open arms and saying, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are, what you're like. Come and experience Jesus and the love of his people and then be changed. So let's look for ways to welcome other people into our community, as God gives that to us. Uh, I've probably told this story before, but it's, it's one where I didn't want to, but the Lord kind of nudged me, and it was very, it was a sweet time. I was at a chapel, I was at a table with a whole bunch of Christians. We had just done our Bible study. It was my first deployment, so I'm a, I'm a young soldier, and there's a couple of chaplains there, and so I really want to impress them, and I've, I've been studying a little bit of Greek, and so, you know, I just... I want their approval. I'm going to soak that up. And, uh, I'm sitting on the end with another guy. His name starts at First Class Doors. And we had just started to talk a little bit, him and me, when I heard the chaplains over there, and I heard them say something about Greek. My ears just perked up. And, and at that point, I wanted to ditch this guy and go over there. And in fact, this man was, was quite a bit different from me. He was about 15 years older. 
He was stationed in Alaska. I was stationed in, I lived in PA. Um, he was just, he was kind of a in the dirt hands guy. I was more of a theoretical guy. Um, he was a different ethnicity. He was black. I was white. Uh, you know, we just had all these differences that today would say you probably shouldn't be talking with each other anyway. Right? But something in the Spirit said, you know, this is your brother in Christ. Get to know him. And I don't remember what we talked about. But I remember it being a, a sweet conversation. And I will say that if I didn't know Jesus, I wouldn't have talked to that sergeant that day. I would have gone and talked to someone else. Because at that point, that's what I was interested in. But instead, I was enriched. Growing to love someone, get to know someone who's a brother in Christ. So we are the church's the church is God's ultimate family. There's a big challenge to this family. It's, it's that we are often divided. And this you see in Paul at Corinth is continued through church history, and we still have divisions in the church. And what Paul says is in light of this beautiful reality that we are God's end times family set apart, joined together, we can't let divisions pull us apart. Right? He he uses that term brothers in verse ten. I appeal to you, brothers. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. He says, don't be torn apart, but have the same mind and judgment. Now, the word Paul uses for divisions there is the word schismata, which you might recognize the word schism, right? It literally, it means a tear or a rip. In this case, figuratively, it's a division or dissension. Right? And the problem here is that people were clinging to various teachers. They had their own cliques. And you understand that you have different voices that you might prefer or different personalities. And that's okay. But they were making them ultimate. They were hanging on to this person. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter or the super spiritual ones. I follow Jesus. And, and their insistence on, on choosing one teacher over the others was swapping out the unity of the church. Right? And Paul... Paul says the church cannot be divided. You know, when he says, is Christ divided, he's actually saying the church there. He's saying Christ is so closely connected to the church that Christ, when we have these divisions, we're tearing Christ apart. Now, just point out two things that Paul is not saying here. First of all, he's not saying that there are times when you never make judgments and everyone stays. And there are times when there are serious doctrinal differences when you do have to make these judgments and sometimes people or churches even need to be removed from the fellowship. Um, also, he's saying it doesn't mean that Christians can't have disagreements in secondary issues, whether they be doctrine or worldview. But what he is saying is that these differences cannot, these differences which are not gospel differences, which is not first order differences, cannot tear us, should not tear us apart as a body of Christ. Now there's so much that divides us as a nation and that filters into the church. Before I talk about our nation, let me just give you an example from Taiwan. You know, I'm pretty sure it's Taiwan, where China has a lot of influence on Taiwan and there's um, either Taiwan or Singapore and I, I might be getting it wrong. Um, but but regardless, China has a lot of influence. And there was a speaker, he went to a church, and there was, you could tell, a faction that was very much anti-Chinese influence. And then there was another faction that certainly wasn't pro-Chinese, but they were taking a softer stance. And he said, it felt like I was in another family's living room in the middle of a family argument. And it was kind of uncomfortable. 
right? Because because the larger conversations of of the the culture filter into the church. And so you think about well, you know, what what are the things today? Well, there's, the Lord has brought it out that there's a lot, right? We, we have differences over the way we view uh, coronavirus, different values, interpretations about how it is and and how we should respond to that. The elections are point, pushing our country, it seems, to the social breaking point. We have deep-rooted differences in ideology. Just broadly sweeping, it's super vague, but capitalism versus socialism, you could drill down. And so is, is health care, welfare, rent control, minimum wage, are these just, are these wise, right? And these are, these are questions that, that make their way into the church, and we can feel very strongly about them. And they can threaten to tear the church apart. And it's hard. It's hard when you have brothers and sisters who who have um, strong differences of opinion on something that's not first order of gospel, but you see, this really matters in the world. What do you do about that, right? Yeah. You, you, you know, I say I'm a brother and sister in Christ, but, but we can't agree on this. What? How do we do this? Well. Where was I? How, how can we do this? Well, first of all, we need to ask, is this really a gospel issue? You know, let's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live dangerously and go back to those broad swaths, right? You could, you, let, let's just look at the ideas of uh, capitalism and socialism very briefly. Can you, I think you can argue, certainly you can argue against pure socialism from scripture, right? There's clearly property rights and a worker is worthy of their wages and those types of things. Um, but you can also argue against the abuses of capitalism, unchecked capitalism, where where the person who owns something gets every scrap of productivity out of it as a, at the expense of the neighbor. I've spread in Deuteronomy about how you're supposed to leave gleanings for the workers today in my script in my scripture reading, right? So we have some very important ideas there, but it's hard to go to scripture and make a solid case as to what level a government should involve itself. You can look at history and you can make those arguments. But my plea is for us not to make these first order gospel issues that would tear apart the church if it's not clearly spelled out in scripture. So how can we avoid that? Well, we need to, and what Paul says, is unite around the power of the cross. The church in Corinth was divided about what leaders they follow. And Paul says, these leaders are not who defines you. Right? Paul, Paul says in, in verse 13, I didn't die for you. You weren't baptized into my name. Implied you were baptized into Jesus' name. Jesus owns you, right? What unites you here, Corinthians, is, is the foolishness of the gospel. Right? And part of the foolishness of the gospel is that human wisdom cannot save us, cannot make a perfect world. It can be helpful, but it's not going to be the be-all, end-all to the, the problems of racism and justice. It, it's, it's not going to provide ultimate life and death meanings. Paul says your only hope is in this upside-down truth that, that Jesus, the God-man, dying on the cross on an instrument of horrific torture and execution is your only way, your only hope of being made right with God and with others. The, the ultimate bedrock truth, Paul says, is that you, you can't bring ultimate change and utopia in the world. Now, he's talking 
uh, very differently than about what our, our things are today. But God destroys the wisdom of the world. He does. There's a, there's a deeper level of the gospel and hearts being changed. You know, my sister and I, we have been talking a lot about current events. And we both said, you know, if humanity was perfect, then going back to capitalism and socialism, if humanity was perfect, either system should work, right? The problem is we have people. And so then we have to act wisely in which situation works well. But the fact is, neither pure capitalism, neither pure socialism, although it may make a difference and even a big one in our world, can ultimately be our savior can ultimately be the thing on which we hope. The great truth is that God takes the misfits of the world, the outcasts of the world, who are rejected, and brings them into his family. So Paul says, that upside-down truth then leaves us humble because we're in that group too. And we've seen God's favor. So Paul says, the ultimate bedrock truth, as you're looking at the things that you boast, people in Corinth were boasting in the factions of their leaders, just boast in Jesus and the gospel. I want to just I reflect personally here. Um, in the last year, I have become to be more vocal internally, and then, at least for me, a little bit more externally as I talk with people about issues in our country, especially free speech and the way things are going. And I'm, I'm very dis- disturbed that people aren't just listening to each other, let, don't, let alone the fact that we don't disagree, that we don't agree, right? Um, I, I have avoided social media because I just don't think it's a very good medium. But I did... Uh, recently start to sit my little toe into the waiting pool and the shallow end, just start to make some comments and post some videos here and there. And as I was doing that, I became very convicted of something. I thought, you know, it is much easier for me to talk about ideas. It's easier for me to talk about idea, uh, ideologies. Easier for me to talk about policy than about effect that Jesus and his gospel has in my life, right? It just is. And I was thinking about that. Um, you know, I, why is that? Now, I'm, I'm focusing in here on a particular issue, and really, in reality, in my mind at least, divorcing it from the fact that Jesus is king. He's ruling and reigning. And how should I look at that issue from that standpoint, and even, not necessarily all the time, but even bring the gospel into that conversation at times. It feels like I'm being much more drug along by current ideas that are out there instead of starting from this glory of the gospel and then moving out. You know, you can post articles and videos, and those can be helpful to stimulate this discussion. But I just ask you, are you, are you talking, are you, are you reflecting and what it means, right, that Jesus is our glory first. I think we need to put more energy into living out the gospel than arguing policies. Now, I was talking to Elizabeth about that, and she says, well, that's great, but what does living out the gospel mean? Because Christians have been very guilty of this, right? Oh, we don't talk about that. That's not spiritual, right? Slavery, not spiritual. We don't talk about that. That was a misstep. Now, we did have Christians that did. But sometimes we as Christians can avoid necessary things that we need to address because we just say, well, we're just going to talk about the gospel. And that just means we're we're just going to talk about eternal realities and it's not going to work out into real 
um, justice that God calls for. Well, here's, here's what I mean first. When you're talking with Christians with whom you disagree, whether it's in your church or, or even you know, if you have a chance for an extended conversation, probably not over Facebook. It might happen. I've had one decent one, I think. Make the gospel the starting point, a priority in your conversation. You know, maybe you and I sit down and, and we can't see eye to eye on, on coronavirus, right? On, on masks or how to wear them or whether we should obey the governor's um, policies. But, you know, we, we can agree that sin is as deadly as COVID or even as deadly as Ebola or worse, right? And that, and that there are areas where we sin and we want to fight that sin. And we want to grow in holiness and we can pray for each other's weaknesses. And, and then as you, you know, as, as you talk about this and, and you come from the same point of framework and you realize this is a fellow brother and sister in Christ and maybe we don't even get to a point of beyond listening to each other and having an agreement. But, but we're no longer adversaries. We're no longer labeled pro or anti this. We're labeled brothers and sisters in Christ. And we happen to have a, a serious disagreement on other issues. You know, you can start there. You can, you can start there. I had a conversation with, with my brother-in-law and um, a dear friend, we love him, but we, we think very differently. And I just thought, you know, we stayed at the issue of, I, I wish we're both Christians. I wish we had started down and said, okay, how does our faith, we, we're at different ends. How does our faith inform how we, we think and come to agreement there before we go on? And so you start there, and then you pray, and then you go out and you serve the Lord faithfully. Now, I will say this. Um, everyone is in a different place. Some of you are out there and you are loving your neighbor um, but probably most of the people who are posting on Facebook and just spending a lot of time shouting a lot of energy and who are Christians, I think the Lord would probably be glorified if they spent half of that time and energy and simply put it towards the quiet work of loving their neighbor where God's called to in their area. If they start with the gospel, yes, spend some time on secondary issues, talk about them, but then going out and loving their neighbor, either as individuals or the group, that would be something that glorifies the Lord. Think about the end. We are in a quarantine house with each other. Except it's not a quarantine house, right? It's going to be the redeemed community from all time. But we are going to be living with each other through all eternity. And that means what we need to do is remember who we are, flee divisions that are not the gospel, and then pursue unity first around the gospel, and then go from there. Let's pray. Father, it's a hard time. Passages like Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians 1 uh, seem very easy until you get into the thick of challenges of life. I pray that each one of us, when we hear especially fellow brothers and sisters saying something that, that angers us or, or befuddles us or just drives us crazy, that we would remember that not many of us were wise or powerful, but you've chosen the weak to make wise, foolish the wisdom of this world, that we would be humble and we would rejoice in the gospel first. And then from that common ground, Lord, would you help us to talk 
and then be faithful to you as we, we live out our lives in your community. Lord, please make us a community that models love, both for people who are like us and people who are different. We look forward to the new heavens and new earth, and we want to be a signpost of what that is right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.